0: Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit. Preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Deuteronomy chapter 8, Matthew chapter number 6. Several weeks ago, we finished really the first half as we focused really on the thy petitions of the disciples' prayer. You'll note there Matthew chapter 6, there are three of them. Uh, He says, after this manner, therefore pray ye... And I would have you remember that sometimes we would call this the model prayer. Uh, sometimes folks refer to it as the Lord's Prayer. And it is true that the Lord taught this, but it is not true that the Lord prayed this. But calling it a model prayer is a, a good idea. Another one that might give some clarity to it is to call it I don't know, maybe the disciples' prayer, because he's telling them to pray this. It's a little bit different, the prayer that the Lord Jesus prayed in the garden in John chapter 17. Uh, some of that, as he prayed, would not be something that we would pray um, but nonetheless, he prayed for us. And so our consideration here is the components and the aspects that make up this model prayer. Uh, the Lord gives an instruction to his disciples and by application, you and I. And it starts off with three thy petitions. And I want to show those to you, though we're not really going to review them. He says, um, our Father which art in heaven, here's the first of those positions. Hallowed be thy name. And you see the thy. And then the second petition is found in verse number 10, thy kingdom come. And then finally, the third one, thy will be done. And then the scripture says in earth as it is in heaven. And really a key to really getting a good study in on these three thy petitions is that last phrase that is thereby given in verse 10 in earth as it is in heaven. You think about the dramatic difference between the name of God being hallowed in heaven and how it is here on earth. You think about the dramatic difference of how God's kingdom is established in heaven and how it stands at this moment here on earth. You think about the difference between the will of God being done in heaven as it even among some of his believers is being done here on earth. So you want a key to the perspective by which God is teaching his disciples, the Lord Jesus teaching the disciples, it is to compare God's sovereign overlay of his will as it pertains to what it is in heaven and what it isn't right now here on earth. And we consider these and we begin to apply them to our prayers and our hearts and our minds, it gives a dramatic distinction that is there. But after he concludes with the thy petitions, we venture into the second half of the prayers. And just in keeping with the thought, we could call this the our petition. The our petition, though that word is not found in all of these. But let me list these for you since it's the first time that we'll deal with these. He says there in verse number 11, and this will be our focus this morning, give us this day our daily bread. He continues in verse number 12 where he requests, forgive us this our debts. As we forgive our debtors. Verse number 13, lead us not into temptation and then deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And this morning we want to take our primary focus in verse number 11. This our petition, give us this day our daily bread. But before we get there, we should consider the question, I think, of why. Why would it be of such great importance that a God who had all the power, how does he expressed there in the last verses, the power and the glory forever, why would it be significant to include, give us this day our daily bread? I mean, and I mean this somewhat sarcastically, why do we need God to provide our daily bread? I mean, after all, in one sense, Hasn't God commanded that by the sweat of the brow, man should eke out, as it were, his existence? This is what he said in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19. Is part of the curse there in the garden, by the sweat of the brow. Has he not said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, that he that would not work, let him not eat? Is it not true in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and in Ephesians chapter 4 that it would be expressly against the principles of scriptures for one that could, that should, not to work? To literally make the choice for someone else to fulfill their responsibility? It seems interesting to me if there's all of these principles, why to express the idea, give us this day our daily bread? Why would I need to pray something, or I should say pray for something, if I can go out and do it? Now the reality is, I want you to think of how simplistic I'm being right now. You get home. This I don't know how many of you are going to have cold cuts or what you're going to have, and I don't want to speak too much about lunch lest that become your focus, but uh, and mine. But last night, if you're a snacker, and, and I'm sure none of you are. Were you able to get up and get your own snack? How much thought did you give to it? You think about lunch today. I don't know what it's like at your house, but often at my house, we're crockpot people. And so sometimes Saturday, my wife will say, hey, if you get a chance, you're down there. Next time you come up from the basement, I spend a lot of time in the basement. <laughs> Bring something, whatever it is, out of the freezer might be a ham, might be a chicken, whatever it is. And I bring that up and invariably it falls a little bit and then it goes into that crock pot. We put whatever we're going to put into it and then you turn it on. Give us this day our daily bread. Doesn't everybody have a freezer? Notice, I want you to know how simplistic this statement is and overlay that with what you know of the scriptures that God has required as it is a little bit of personal effort on our end we can become all too secure in what we can provide for ourselves. You see, that is a good lesson in some of the truths about God. God does wonderful and mighty things. And sometimes he does them supernaturally. And you didn't have to do anything for it. For instance, you didn't have to do anything for it to rain the other day. You didn't have to go out and dance about. You didn't have to turn your light switch on three times and open your door quick. You didn't have to do any of that. It just happened. God brought that about from a meteorological point of view. You think of the Old Testament. The New Testament, you think of some of the miracles that are present. I think about the feeding of the 5,000. They all ate, but how many of them brought food to eat? They didn't have them there. Except the old fellow with the five loaves and two fishes. Yet as a whole in a principle of what the Lord teaches regarding himself, God works and ministers to us through various gifts or graces. Think about this for a moment. God gives salvation freely, does he not? But doesn't he require something of you? Ephesians, for by grace are you saved through... That's right. Can a man be saved without faith? No. So often we apply the wrong graces to it. we would say God provided salvation as long as you work hard enough for it. And then after wearing our heart, mind, and soul to its very frazzle, we come upon the theological truth that is found in Titus. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. But he uses faith. Romans 10 gives that wonderful example that if thou shalt believe in thine heart, God is risen from the dead. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth and believe in thine heart, thou shalt be saved. That's the grace he works through. No man's ever going to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ without faith in him. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For he that believeth he is, is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Faith. Is a grace, a gift, if you will, that God uses as it pertains to salvation. That would not be alone. For instance, we might would even speak of the fact that at the moment of salvation, we're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And Ephesians, in the opening chapter, deals with all of these wondrous things. My favorite, I think, is the sixth verse, where he says, you're accepted in the beloved. I rather like that passage. Why? I may not be accepted of my own country at times. I may not be accepted of all my friends, and this is a greater truth to some in some countries, and from some families that come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and they're considered an outcast. But through Jesus Christ they experience the glorious truths that when your father and mother have forsaken you, then will he lift you up. And there are many of you that have experienced something of that nature. So at the moment I'm seated in heavenly places. But then Peter comes along in 1 Peter chapter 1 in the eighteenth and 18th verse, and he says, Be holy, for I am holy. What do you mean? This is the process of sanctification. I, at the moment of salvation, inherit all the riches of God's righteousness are applied to my account. When God the Father looks at me, He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But now that is not the conclusion of the matter. There is this grace of sanctification and in that is a requirement that I walk worthy and to walk holy and to walk circumspectly. Most of that comes from Ephesians chapter 5. God uses the grace of sanctification. And I think this is in the same way as we sense prayer. Someone might ask, why would we pray, give us this day our daily bread? It seems trivial. It seems simplistic. Give us this day our daily bread, I'll get up and get my own bread. I put the garden in. I mean, I didn't, but someone did. I paid the guy that put it in. I purchased it. I brought it to my table or up from my basement. I put it in my crock pot. It was my money that paid for the electric, that electrified the crock pot. It's my ladle that dipped in. Why then should I pray? It seems on that behalf and at that simplistic point of view that I've done all the work. Why should I pray for something that is so trivial? I should really only rather bother God with the things that are expansive in life, those big things, not those daily bread things. You see, the fact is God has a sovereign will. But what you see over and over and over and over and over again in the Scripture is this. He intervenes through the grace of prayer. There's been many. Many. That cried out to God, and he provided above which they were able to ask or think. God works through various graces, and prayer equally is one of those. Note here the, this daily bread for a moment. Speaking of this bread, the phrase, I don't know about you, but when I read through it, I, I want to smile every time I get to this particular passage. It seems somewhat humorous, really especially in light of our Western culture. In our society, we always hear of the evils of bread. I mean, it's the unholy trinity, isn't it? It's got your gluten and it's got your sugars and it's got your carbs. And it seems that so often what you hear today is stay away from bread. Why then am I praying for something that seemingly seems to be the unholy trinity of all diets? I'll ask you simplistically again, maybe sarcastically, is God telling us we should only eat bread? I think there might be some that would say, absolutely, that's what he's saying here. I agree with you. Well, no, that's not the case. This daily bread that he's talking to, this is the essence of life. It is the essence of all of your needs. In the time of the Lord, in these I'll call it the ancient worlds, if you will, bread was the staple of life. That's what you had. You might have had cheese as well, but there's no refrigeration quite like what we have today. Uh, There's many of the ways in which we preserve food were not quite the same way, and bread was one of those that had a longer shelf life. That's why that young lad that we mentioned a moment ago could have his two fish, five loaves of bread. That's why you could transport them and you could send them to the front during a time of the war with bread and cheese to strengthen someone if you wanted to. It was the essence and staple of life. In fact, over in Exodus, the 16th chapter, the children of Israel are getting ready to leave Egypt and they're going to go into the promised land and no doubt, there's a little bit of nervousness that exists in their heart because they're going to leave the comfort and stability Maybe comfort, not the word, but they're going to leave the stability of Egypt. They were slaves and they had an off taskmaster, but there was some stability in Egypt. And there was a dietary stability that they had. Cucumbers, melons, leeks, garlics, onions, yeah, take them or leave them. But there was a stability. Now here's the problem. We're going to cross... We're going to go across an area that is very unpopulated. There's not Wawa's and 7-Elevens on every corner. Where are we going to get this food? I mean, we're not talking about ten people. The Proverbs talks about a fool spending his money, that it leaves him like a man that is traveling. Valleys and hills, picturesque, isn't it? A land of wheat, a land of wheat and barley. And vines and fig trees and pomegranates. Land of olive oil oil olive, rather, and honey. A land wherein thou shalt eat bread without what? What's that mean? Have more than you need. It's not gonna be like it was in Egypt. of a missionary acquaintance of mine. I've read every letter he sent me for the last five or six years. He's a covert missionary to Cuba. And when uh, COVID happened, and began to subside a little bit, he was able to go in country for like six weeks, and he met with some of the pastors and churches there. And that was the last time that he was able to do it for some time. That come to church services and split up a roll of toilet paper. Families picking which day they're going to eat. He didn't ask for one dime. That wasn't what this was about. Not everybody has your life. The world over, righteous and unrighteous, don't have your life. They don't live where you live. Not every Christian the world over can say that they live in a land where bread exists without scarceness. It's a first world problem, brethren, when you walk into a grocery store that's got five aisles of organic food. Go ask Lazarus over in the Gospel of Luke about organic food. Now, I'm not preaching against it. Quite the contrary. I'm trying to show how innately blessed we have been. Marvelous to consider. This is what he promised them. No scarcity of bread. Think of all of the dreams that you can now have. When you were in Egypt, a little boy growing up in the household of a slave, what's his dream? Be a slave just like his daddy. That's your hope and expectation. Now you come into a land that God has given you. You've lived in a tent all your life and now you're going to have a house and it gets better. You're going to have enough possession that you're going to be able to give your children's children's part of that inheritance. That's what he's talking about. That's this land you're going to come in. Now keep reading with me. A land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness, thou shalt not lack anything in it a land whose stones are what it's not a barren land there's minerals there's development and ingenuity that can be planted upon it out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass note verse 10 when thou hast eaten and art full then shalt thou bless the lord thy god for the good land which he hath given thee now notice if you will in verse 11 and 12 is going to remind him of something Beware. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God, in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. A Puritan preacher named Cotton Mather put it this way. Religion, true religion, begets prosperity, and the daughter of Always devours the mother. You know what he's saying? It was the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that gave you truth. You've applied truth to your life, and there can be a carnal testament of something tangible. You learned how to not steal. You realize it's wrong. In the eyes of God, it's morally condemned. You do right. There's God's blessing. There's a number of things that follow suit. And now what happens? You have substance and children raised with substance tend to be the generation that worships the daughter of substance rather than the God of truth. I continue. Notice what he says. Verse 12. "Less when thou hast eaten in full and has built goodly houses... And dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied. Verse 14. Then thy heart be lifted up, and thou forgettest the Lord God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage, who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness, where were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought. There was no water who brought thee forth out of rock, uh, who brought forth water out of rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou say, verse 17, in thine heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Why pray for it? I got it out of the freezer. I put it in the freezer first. It was my money that put the electric together. It was my strength that took it up the stairs and put it in the crock pot. It was my strength that got the crock pot out in the first place. It's my strength that ate it. it It's my strength that puts it all away. Why then do I need to pray for, give us this day our daily bread? You see... For time's sake, Matthew chapter 6, this isn't a new difficulty at all. Man has, and Christians are not exempt for this, an innate, an innate rather, pursuit sometime to forget the God of all blessings. To forget that even in the Garden of Eden, it was God that provided for man before he ever created him. For in Genesis chapter 1 and 29, after he's created, he said, now all the herbs of the field here, Every bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree, uh, that which is fruit of the tree yielding seed, it shall be meant for you for meat. It's interesting, isn't it, that in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, he highlights that one of the marks of those that are divergent from the truth is a rejection of some of the food that God made. Isn't that interesting? And the ultimate reason is because they've made that the idol. Everything that we enjoy in life comes down from the Father above. We need to recognize it. I must hurry, but look at this other word here, the word give. It's a promise of God. We could never expect anything from God that he has not promised. But in regards to meeting a need, he has committed himself to us in this area. Psalm 37 and 20, there's a number of passages, I think of Philippians chapter 4. But in Psalm 37, David writes, I have been young and now I'm old. And you think of all the things you could observe in the time frame of life. David said, I'll list one for you. I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor a seed begging. Why? There's the provider And what does he do? He provides. You know, it's interesting today, though, isn't it? 29% of the earth's surface is land. 71% is water. Of that 29% of earth that is land, 71% of it is inhabitable land, meaning it's not a desert, it's not a polar ice cap either. It's inhabitive land. Of that 71% of the 29% land, of that 71% that is inhabited, only 23% of it is used for crops. That's it. It's a very small portion of the earth that is really used for crops. In fact, there's a lot more that's used for Livestock than actually seed and crop. And it's amazing to me because what this tells us is that really there is more than enough land to sustain our world and all of its population. Let me take that a step further. If you combine all the available space and land that there is for seed to be raised, for food to be had... And you combine that with scientific planting like crop rotations is what I'm talking about. Or you further combine that with technology and I'm talking about tractors instead of horses to plow. There really should be no famine or accompanying disease the world over. But why is it that you still have that happening in the world sometimes? Now I realize that sometimes there's floods and that can be outside, sometimes outside the control of man. Many times, though, what makes the difference is biblical truth. They've never recognized it's God that gives. They have changed God into, Romans says, a four-footed beast. There's many pagan religions today that have nothing, nothing more than devalue life. Just one to focus on would be the Hindu religion. It's the majority religion of India with over 330 gods. Cows are esteemed highly. And I'm not talking about how some of you are going to highly esteem them this afternoon. They're highly esteemed. In so much, the one individual, not from a religious point of view at all, just just in a socioeconomic sense, said that he estimated that sacred animals in India primarily and regions of India primarily eat 20% of their food supply. Think about that a moment. And uncleanliness, filth. That fosters rats and mice, eats approximately 10%. Human life, you're just the spawn of something that was created. You don't matter anymore. They have no understanding of the true God of heaven. They've got 330 different polyistic deities that they're going to worship. There's this. They have no idea the God of truth. And as a result, They'll praise a cow and protect him while they're starving. You see, failure to have a proper view of God always produces an improper view of man. And that's what brings so much difficulty in our life. Now, since I've picked a little bit on Hindu, let's talk about the United States of America for a moment. We talk about wildfires. We talk about places like the Southwest that have no water. It's very interesting. One of the reasons I've got an article right here from the New York Times. And the essence of this article, if you want to read it, a part of California needs to build dams. But they resisted doing it. Why? Because it might hurt a fish or a birdie. As a result... As a result, this year, this article is from last week, they have allowed tens of billions of gallons of fresh water to go right out into the ocean. I'm not making this up. They have esteemed flying things and creeping things more than humanity. And what has led to it is not an accidental mythological issue. It's a reality that they have not recognized and had a proper view of God. When you don't have a proper view of God, you will not have a proper view of mankind that was made in the image of God, and your decisions will be evil. God alone is the source of all success, He is the giver of all good things. Let me leave you with one last thought. Why should I pray for my daily needs? I'll move quickly. I'll give you a list of six, seven things here. There's so much here. I'm going to move on next week. I think I ought to make a habit of praying for my daily needs because it in fact esteems and establishes God in my mind as being supreme. If I had no other reason than when I go and pull up to that crockpot mill to bow my head, it is training my mind who I know to be supreme. And it ain't the guy that pulled the meat out. It's the God that gave him strength to do so. Number two, I pray for my daily needs because it develops a heart of humility. Give us this day our daily bread. Ah, the heart of humility, though the pantry might be full, give us this day our daily bread. It established the hearts of humility and remember the truth of James. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Number 3 it produces a stewardship mentality in my life. If God is supreme and my heart is humbled before him, I then see all of my possessions not as mine, but rather that I am simply stewarding what is on loan from God. The money in your wallet, you know there's only it's only about 7 trillion dollars worth of gold in the entire earth. That's it. And it is somewhat eternal or long-lasting, perhaps. The gold that you have used to belong to somebody else. You can trace that back as far as you want to trace it. But I promise you, it belonged to somebody else. And you ain't going to take it with you. You're going to leave it to someone Ecclesiastes said, the writer, the preacher there said, that's a troublesome thing to know whether I leave it to the wise or the fool. Pray and give us this day our daily bread. It establishes in our heart a stewardship mentality. What I have, God has given me to steward. And I'm going to stand account to whether I be a wise or foolish steward. Number four, it constructs a heart of thankfulness realizing what God has given me to steward and that I'm unworthy and He is supreme, my brother, I have much or little, I could sit there and say, thank you, Lord. I can give thanks. That's the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning me. Number five, it motivates a cheerful heart of giving. <laughs> I heard a fellow say this the other day. He said, boy, I hate when they collect offerings at church. So, why do you hate that? He said, Well, he said, I opened my, ma- my wallet and I. Uh, he wasn't a father. I think that's why he could say this. <laughs> you know the difference between a young man and a father? One has cash, the other has pictures where cash used to be. <laughs> so, he opened it up and he said, There's a ones and a twenties and a fifty and a couple of one hundreds. And he said, From the get go, the Lord and me start having a discussion about which ones I should give. He always wants the one hundred, and I always want to give him the one and I try to get him to settle on less than the 100s. Now he's telling a humorous personal anecdote. It's a level of truth, isn't it? What kind of giver does God love? You'll never be a cheerful giver unless you recognize that what you have came from God and belongs to God. Number six, when constantly engaged, give us this day our daily bread, praying for those essential, necessary things of life, it relieves a heavy burden of concern. There's just some things I don't have to worry about. I would note, and I have not even spent time dealing with daily. Give us this day. Day. I don't know about you, but you could worry about retirement, even if it might be 20 years from now. Or five years from now. You know what you can do about Tomorrow. You don't even know if you're going to see it. Now, that doesn't mean that we ought not to have the wisdom and foresight. That's that's a different matter. In fact, I would say there's in this area, there's so many. There's a difference between pursuing wealth and providing well in life, too. There's a difference between having a God of money and being a person of financial discipline and savings. There are distinctions. But when I personally engage and consistently engage in praying daily for that which God has provided, it just relieves a heavy burden of concern. And finally, it allows our joy to be maximized and to be expressed even in times of difficulty. You look back and you see all those days. I teased with the seniors a moment ago, but you look over all the days God's provided for you. And some of you have a lot of stories. You got married. You'd have two red cents to rub together. You did not really have anybody to help you put a deposit on a house. Scrapped for a lot of things. But you it as the preeminent thing to seek first the kingdom of God. I know I could recount many a Christian story. I can think of many a young dedicated Christian had to figure out which they were going to do first and, and how early in years when it came to tithing and giving beyond those things to missions and things of that nature, there was difficulty. it required a tremendous amount of faith. Yet what did God do? He provided. And now you pull that old cart down a piece and you've reached in your old age. I know you're not old. But some people think you are. Just look back. God provided, provided, and provided, and provided. You know my thought about that? That's what brings joy in my heart. If God provided for me enough to give what I thought was sacrificial in the early years, can he not do that again? It's a joy. It allows me to have joy unspeakable. Why? Because the supreme, infinite, almighty, powerful God cares for me. I'll leave you with this thought. In fact, I didn't know they were going to play it for an offertory. It's a song about 100 years old. I'll read it to you in closing. Is there a heart or bound by sorrow? Is there a life weighed down by care? Come to the cross, each burden bearing. All your anxiety, leave it there. No other friend so swift to help you. No other friend so quick to hear. No other place to leave your burden. No other one to hear your prayer. Come then at once, delay no longer. Heed his entreaty kind and sweet. You need not fear a disappointment. You'll find peace at the mercy seat. The refrain goes, all your anxiety, all your care. Bring to the mercy seek, leave it there. Never a burden he cannot bear, never a friend like Jesus. Give us this day. Let's stand at our feet, Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112, and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.